So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but. 1970, Andy Warhol's factory had just begun publishing his first magazine, Andy Warhol's Interview. One, two, three, four, five, six. So in a really short history, you have Andy Warhol arriving in New York as a graphic artist, the mumbling, putty-faced figure of Andy Warhol. Then you have him dominant as a pop artist. The, the perfect pop artist. Then as the filmmaker... And so now Interview magazine takes it onto this next stage, Andy in print. So in 2004, Karl Lagerfeld, who's obsessed with books and he has his own publishing company called 7L, he publishes a best of interview, best of the first 10 years, with the subtitle Crystal Ball of Pop Culture. What this is, is not just a book. It's a box set of seven books. They've split all the content up between the books, which is quite radical. And they weigh, collectively, about 60 kilos. And because of that, they come in a box. This box is a crate. And because of the weight of the crate and the books, now the crate has to have wheels and a handle, which makes it, of course, like a super book because it's as far away from a book as you need to be to be a super book, so it couldn't be better. You're carrying around not just 10 years of a magazine, you're carrying a decade. If you measure things by film, if you measure things by music, if you measure things by fashion, then 10 years of that through the best filter, that's Interview Magazine, and that's in this box. 1970, 22-year-old Bob Colicello is studying film at Columbia. His hero is Andy Warhol, and he'd just reviewed his film Flesh for The Village Voice. I was back living with my parents in a suburb on Long Island. The phone rang around 7 o'clock in the evening. This man introduced himself. He said his name was Soren Ingenieux. He said he was the editor of this new magazine called Andy Warhol's Interview and that Andy had been reading my reviews in The Village Voice and they would like me to uh, come and meet them and maybe write some film reviews for Interview. And I'd never heard of Interview. It was only about nine months old. Andy Warhol was one of my idols. I was so thrilled. My parents, however, were not too thrilled. And my father told me if I actually had a meeting with this creep who uh, made films about boys who think they're girls. Uh, he would, you know, break my movie camera and then he would break my legs. My father was not in the mafia, I hastened to add. But of course, I couldn't wait after class the next day to get down to Union Square and meet Andy Warhol. And that's how it all started. The factory was in a building uh, at 33 Union Square West. I was told to go to the 10th floor to interview's office, which turned out to be like a 10 feet by 10 feet storage closet, basically, piled up with boxes of the past few issues of the magazine. 
And I met Saur in there. He took me down to the sixth floor to meet Andy. Andy had been shot in 1968 by Valerie Solanis, this crazy woman who was in a couple of his films, and almost killed. So they had this uh, so-called security system. He got off the elevator and there was a sheetrock vestibule that had a steel door, bulletproof door, with a little window. And looking through the window, I could see Andy Warhol sitting behind this little Art Deco desk. He buzzed us in and Soren introduced me. And Andy said, oh, gee, oh, oh, I like you write so well. Oh, you should write for us. And, oh, would you like some lunch? And he was eating these um, carrot and, and spinach purees from this health food store around the corner because even two years after the shooting, his stomach was still torn apart, and he only could eat very soft foods. And uh, I was like, I can't believe Andy Warhol's offering to share his lunch with me. After that meeting, Bob began writing film reviews regularly for interview. Then one day, I went down there to hand in uh, a review. I went up to the 10th floor, and it was all boarded up. So I went down to the 6th floor. There was Andy at the Art Deco desk, and I said, what's going on? He said, oh, gee, we had a fire, sorry, no, oh. Talk to Paul Morrissey, he wants to talk to you. Paul Morrissey directed Andy's films. He said to me, oh, you know, we had to get rid of Soren, and, and, and Andy and I thought you could be the new editor. And I was like, the new editor? I, I don't, I've never edited anything. I mean, and I'm still at school at Columbia. And Paul said, oh, you know, I'm sure they'll give you some credits for working for us and we'll pay you $40 a week. And I said, $40 a week? I mean, even in 1970 or 71, it was by now, was not much money. He said, well, it's a part-time job. I said, all right, let me think this over. One of my good friends from Georgetown who had also gone on to Columbia Film School, Glenn O'Brien, I went and told him and his wife about this, and they said, oh, we want to be part of this too. Hi, I'm Glenn O'Brien. I'm a writer. I'm a Pisces. There was kind of a lot of chaos because nobody really knew, knew how to put a magazine together. I think they were looking for some smart, young, clean-cut college kids who were not uh, addicted to methamphetamine. So they found us. Uh, they found Bob first, and Bob, I think, sensed that he needed help. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll do this if we can hire my friend Glenn to help me. Paul said, great. And he said, well, Andy and Fred Hughes was Andy's art manager. And he said, Andy, Fred, and I are going to Venice Film Festival tomorrow. I said, you're all leaving? I don't know what to do. I mean, how could you all leave? He said, oh, it's, it's no big deal. You just go to this printer in Chinatown and they'll print it. And, and here's a bunch of photos. Run one of these on every page. So I look in this envelope he handed me, and every photograph is of Rita Hayworth. And I said, well, but Paul, I mean, the magazine is called a film journal, and it's mostly re reviews of European films and underground films. What does Rita Hayworth have to do with that? He said, oh, just put her photo on every page. It'll look great. I was sort of raised, do what the boss tells you. We put Rita Hayworth on every page, and then we went to Chinatown, and we screamed at the printer, no more ink, too much ink but he didn't speak English, so half the 5,000 print run we had to throw away because it was like solid black. 
and we were told then to drop some issues off at Museum of Modern Art and some issues at Anthology Film Archives, the Cathedral of Underground Film in New York. This was run by a great Central European intellectual called Jonas Mikas. I showed him this, you know, my first issue, and he went through it page by page, and he said, you are a genius. You have reinvented the entire idea of a magazine. This is brilliant. The photos have nothing to do with the text. And I was like, oh, okay, if you say so. Well, Andy had two stories about why he started Interview. One was, uh, I started it to give the kids something to do. And then other people would say, oh, Andy started it so he could get free tickets to the New York Film Festival. And I, I think probably the truth lies somewhere in between. Andy basically only set two or three rules from the beginning. One was make every photo as big as you could possibly make it. If every photo could be full page, that would be the way to go. Also, no type on photos. Andy hated the whole look, you know, of Vogue and Mademoiselle. It was like you tore photos and you collage them and you put words like fabulous and wow and hot pink type over them. He was very much about, you know, photography is art and should be respected and look great unadorned. Uh, or never write anything mean about someone who might buy art. <laughs> that was another rule. <laughs> and that was kind of it. The editorial material kind of almost fell in our laps. Andy and Fred had such a wide circle of glamorous friends that people would come for lunch at the factory and say, you should be the next cover, or can we turn on a tape recorder and make this an interview? And it could be Jack Nicholson or, or Angelica Houston or Mick Jagger or Bianca Jagger or David Bowie. And usually their PR people would get so upset because they would be like, how could you do the cover of Little Interview magazine six months before the movie comes out? Everybody was kind of looking for attention, and, you know, it was a hip young magazine, so it wasn't too difficult to get people. I mean, Andy's line was always, oh, you should be on a cover, you're so beautiful. What happened in those first two years is we went from being strictly film to like, why can't we do fashion designers who design for film? We saw that the more you mixed it up, the more exciting it became and unexpected, and somehow the more readers we picked up. It was really Andy who loved uh, and had curiosity about all kinds of people uh, and loved mixing professions, uh, nationalities, sexualities, every, uh, just everything. You never knew what to expect, and the juxtaposition seemed so bizarre sometimes. To go from Prince or Michael Jackson to Caspar Weinberg and the Secretary of Defense for Reagan was like, what are these people doing in the same magazine? But that's what made it special. The magazine was very much about discovery. Andy loved discovering people. Prince was in one club in his purple panties, and then he became a big star a year later. So that was exciting to be able to say, we did these people first, to actually promote the new. And Andy really strongly believed in that and imbued that into all of us.
ironically, I mean, the magazine was titled Interview, and until Bob and I arrived, there weren't that many interviews, and we made it sort of all interview, except for a couple of columns. Sony introduces the only cassette player as small as a cassette case, the incredible-sounding Super Walkman. I think it's interesting that, that Interview was started at at the same time that the cassette tape was introduced. Up to that time, if you wanted to record someone, you generally had a pretty big machine that you had to schlep around. But suddenly, you know, you had something that was like, you know, half the size of a milk carton that, that you could make a very high quality recording on, you know, specifically the Sony Walkman. And Andy always had one with him and a Polaroid camera, so he had everything basically that you need to do a story on his person most of the time. The cover stories Andy and I generally did together, and usually they were over lunch, whether at the factory or at um, a restaurant. Quo Vadis was our favorite. It was an old-fashioned, what was called in those days, continental restaurant. But it had, you know, like, wall-to-wall carpeting and red velvet walls that had great acoustics. So we did a lot of interviews there. They were very free-form, the interviews. The idea was they were supposed to be conversations, not inquisitions. Andy and I had this routine we called it the Abbott and Costello Act. He would ask dumb questions, and then I would, I would ask a serious question. And he would even say in the middle of the interview, oh, Bob, why don't you ask a serious question now, you know? And then people would open up more. It was the opposite of what I saw happening when a professional journalist from the Washington Post or the Detroit Free Press would come to interview Andy and like they'd be, well, are you gay? Are you a millionaire? How much money do you make a year? You know, that's how they would start the interview. And Andy would always say, I mean, why don't they wait till ask me those questions? And, and he would give them the same answers. I just thought these journalists, they all think it's like Watergate and all they're doing is interviewing an artist. We sort of had the opposite approach, which was very laissez-faire and let people say what they want. And I think readers felt like they were the fly on the wall, like actually, you know, at the factory, at a restaurant with Andy and Cher or Diana Ross. Our aim was basically to bring you a sort of slice of life, open, above board, uh, chance for people to, you know, show themselves as they are instead of being portrayed by some sort of frustrated fiction writer without too much editorial monkey business. I mean, today I think you don't really realize how different Interview was because everybody does the same thing. I mean, after that, every little music magazine, every film magazine, they all went to this kind of Q&A thing. It just kind of caught on because it was so easy and so natural and it had a certain charm. I remember one of the hardest people to interview was Priscilla Presley, the ex-wife of Elvis, who came with her then-boyfriend, former male model, very good-looking, but he seemed to control her. Before she would answer any question, she would look at him for approval and then very hesitantly give like a big nothing answer. And we could not get her to talk about Elvis until Andy said something like, Oh, we went to the Iranian embassy last night. Gee, they have so much caviar there. Do you like caviar? And she was like, well, to tell you the truth, I could never eat caviar because Elvis hated fish. He would not eat fish. It was like, oh, finally she said something about Elvis. You know? So we made that a pull quote. Elvis hated fish. Hallelujah. 
Michael Jackson was a difficult one. Michael Jackson adored Andy. He even imitated the way Andy talked in this soft, oh, gee, oh, gee, you know. So Michael said he would be on the cover of Interview. He was about 22 at the time. On one floor, he had like a, almost like a dance studio with mirrored walls and a bar, like in a ballet studio. And then he had all these mannequins, male and female, store mannequins, naked, like a dozen of them. And he explained to me, oh, you see, what I do with these mannequins is I try different costumes on them, you know, for my videos, and I see what works. And, I, and it was like so clear to me. It was like this grown man playing with dolls, life-size dolls. And what he seemed to be really afraid of was sex. And I think that's why he related with Andy, because I think Andy had a big problem with intimacy with people. And um, after that interview, when that came out, his managers never let him do that kind of tape-recorded interview again, because they just realized tape recording like that really showed you the real Michael. Everyone has their own idea of Andy Warhol. Everyone has that snapshot image in their mind of Andy Warhol. But you wonder what he was like to work with, like day to day. Andy was so accessible, you know, starting with offering me his purees to share. You know, and he was opening his mail and he would take each piece of mail and he would hold it right up to his eyeglasses as if he was looking, you know, he was interested in the quality of the paper. I don't know why he was examining it so closely. And then he would tear off the stamp, the cancel stamp, and put it in a box, which I later learned was his stamp collection. His parents didn't speak English. They were immigrants from Slovakia. And I think Andy grew up learning English through 1940s movies. His whole vocabulary sounded like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney in some, you know, Our Gang movie. Okay, I just got to have an Emmett Coulter. Oh, sure, sure. And Emmett Coulter, this is champagne. <laughs> it was like, oh, but, gee, Bob, when is my ship going to come in? And it was like, your ship did come in, Andy. Or, or like, I got to bring home the bacon. I have so many mouths to feed. It was all these cliches strung together. I don't know, I just thought he was so nice. You know, I expected him to be much weirder from his image of, you know, black leather jacket. and But he was already getting away from that in the 70s and away from the world that had led him to being shot and sort of replacing the speed freaks who were either street people or crazy heiresses like Edie Sedgwick with more middle-class, college-educated kids like Fred Hughes and myself. I mean, I was the one who was probably the most bourgeois about the whole thing. And that's one of the reasons I think Andy liked having me there was because I could deal with the square people that you had to deal with who came from the advertising agencies or who were the rich collectors. I never went to the first factory. I mean, the first factory was really before I moved to New York. A lot of times people who had been part of that, you know, the old superstars from the early films would come by, often, you know, trying to get money from Andy. I remember thinking, oh, gee, that was it. I really missed it. That was the exciting time. But then later thinking, well, I'm still alive. Because a lot of those people didn't last very long. It did evolve more and more into a business over the years. 
Andy believed in business, and he was very disciplined. He got on the phone at nine every morning. He called me. He called Fred. He wanted to know where we were, what we were doing, when we were getting to the office. You know. Oh, I saw you last night with Calvin Klein in Studio 54, Pop. Did you sell any ads? Andy, it was three in the morning when I was talking to Calvin. Oh, Pop, that's the best time to sell ads. You had to produce. It was a job, but it was uncool to make it seem like you were working so hard. You know, if I worked late, Andy would say, oh, you want to come to a party with me? And it would be like, oh, we have to pick up Truman Capote on the way. It would be like Mick Jagger's birthday party. You know, at 22 years old, to be just, like, thrown into this world of celebrity and society and art... My background was my grandparents came over from Italy as children. I was born in Brooklyn. We moved up to Long Island. My father climbed the ladder in the coffee trade. He was the first Italian-American to have an executive position. But, you know, I didn't know society people. I mean, I quickly realized that people are people. And these society ladies sitting around gossiping about one another was just like my grandmother and her sister gossiping about the people in Borough Park, Brooklyn. You have to understand, this was not like working at Time, Inc. or Hearst Corporation. This was Andy Warhol's factory, run by an artist, and everything we were doing was for the greater glorification of that artist. He just had to take Andy the way he was, and... He could be so funny, and he could also be so annoying. Do you believe in feelings and emotions? You know, Andy almost liked to provoke fights about anything. Well, no, I don't, but uh, I have them. I wish I, I wish I didn't. Because then he could tell Pat Hackett for his diary the next day, oh, Bob had a nervous breakdown yesterday. But you'd like to get rid of them altogether, wouldn't you? Uh, it would be a good idea, yeah. He was very childish in many, many ways. Why, do you think you'd be happier? But happiness is a feeling too, isn't it? And so, like a little child, you know, sometimes you had to really crack down. Uh, well, no, just, just, you know, just a feeling of doing the right, you know, just getting by. I was told on occasion that I treated Andy as if I were the boss. Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, I felt protective towards him. Maybe because he had been shot and he was frightened. He would walk down the street. And if Andy saw someone strange, like, approaching us, we'd duck into a store. So I felt like I had to protect him, and I had to help him. Where, in reality, he was really helping me, you know, by giving me this job and, and taking me to all these places. I, I found Andy very endearing. As time went on, I found him a little less endearing. But over time, I've come more and more to realize how unbelievably lucky and fortunate I was to ever meet Andy and to have the privilege to be one of his close collaborators for 13 years. So here's this young man on first name terms with some of the most famous people in the world, but he comes from a conservative Italian-American family. The culture clash for him must have been massive. He's hanging out with people like Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol's superstar and transgender actress Candy Darling. 
I remember when Andy, in 1972, had his retrospective at the Whitney Museum, and I took my mother to see it one afternoon, and it was raining very heavily. And we'd gone through the exhibition, and we got into one of those big elevators that the Whitney Museum had. The, the elevator doors open. There's Candy Darling, you know, looking a little bit draggled in a trench coat, but her beautiful blonde hair was all wet and straggly. And, and I said, oh, this is my mother, Candy. Oh, Mrs. Colicello, we all love your son at the factory, you know. She comes out of the elevator, we get in, and my mother says, she, he, or it, whatever you call it, looks like something the cat dragged in. And I said, well, it's raining, Mom. You know, she usually looks better. And, well, I just hope, you know, you don't turn out that way. <laughs> it's like, no, Mom, don't worry. That's not my interest. Empty beaches are enchanting Because you're a woman Loving free so I always say I was I was saved, or my family unity was saved by Nelson Rockefeller, then governor of New York State and a major art collector. He showed up one day at the factory, not long after I started working at Interview, to look at some paintings. So I couldn't wait to call my father that night and tell him that I'd met Governor Rockefeller. That sort of gave my father like an out with his friends on Wall Street. When they asked what I was doing, you know, he could say, well, Robert's working for Andy Warhol, but... Nelson Rockefeller collects Andy's paintings. He has been in the national spotlight ever since. It kind of legitimized everything in, in my parents' size. High, low, medium. Everybody cares what the neighbors think. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. What prompted me to leave, well, it was a buildup of things. I just heard myself like putting Andy down at dinners and things, and I thought... I'd always been raised, when you start putting down either your boss or your spouse in public, it's time for a divorce. I also thought Andy's going to live forever. You know, he'll be 100, they'll be wheeling him in, and he'll be like, oh, hi, kids, you know, and we'll be like all in our 80s, or I just thought, I can't be here for the rest of my life if I don't get out. At 35, I'll never do it. And it was like running away from home, literally, because it wasn't like a job. It was a cross between uh, a dysfunctional family and a highly functional cult. And, um, you know, I had a family. Unlike a lot of people who were attracted to Andy, they were estranged from their families. I was not estranged from my real family. And I think that's what saved me in a way, not only from, you know, Andy completely taking over your life, but, you know, from all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I, I think I was able to finally go beyond that. It took a while. I wasn't lost, fundamentally. You know, I, I had some roots, and I had uh, some values that hadn't left me. So Bob Colicello left the interview and he went on to write for Vanity Fair. And Glenn O'Brien, he left the interview like on a permanent basis, but he stayed like writing columns and he wrote for Rolling Stone and many, many magazines. And then Andy Warhol died in 1987, but Interview Magazine certainly did not. 
it's relevant and happening now. Does it look anything like it used to do? No, it doesn't. It looks like a good celebrity kind of magazine now. Is it Andy Warhol's interview? It doesn't say that on the cover. But in terms of the issue that's out now when we're recording this with their Instagram special, with their FaceTime covers of Kim Kardashian and Miley Cyrus and Zayn and just about everybody super famous you could possibly imagine, maybe it is. Maybe Andy Warhol absolutely love it. Why not? It's Andy Warhol's interview. Superbooks was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang, authored by myself, David Owen, and featuring Bob Colicello and Glenn O'Brien. Executive produced by Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. Produced and edited by Olivia Humphreys. Sound designed by Ivor Manley and Harry Watson. (laughs) 